So the fasting Buddha is one image that we would absolutely recommend you to see if you want to get a hold of how impressive Gandharan art is. Because this is the Buddha shown with almost all of his bones bare. His ribs are exposed. He has sunken eyes. And in fact, as Pramod Chandra describes it, the face carries hardly a trace of human flesh. The feeble eyes are sunken in deep sockets. The cheekbones protrude. The cheeks are pinched. And the skin of the forehead is pulled tightly over the skull. This is the For All Time's Sake podcast by Thyasology, hosted by Eric Chopra and Kudrat Singh. In this podcast, we dive deep into the fascinating and multi-layered past of India, all while keeping histories of emotions and experiences at the core of our discussions. Here at Thyasology, we believe that nobody should feel left out of history. We're not just sharing stories about the big names, dates and places. We are also uncovering hidden gems from the footnotes of history. From overarching themes like society, polity and economy to histories of art, gender, sexuality, fashion, horror and more. We have got you covered. Welcome to this captivating historical journey. Hello everybody, this is Eric Chopra. And this is Kudrat Singh. And welcome to another episode of the For Old Times Sake podcast by Thyasology. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Kushans, which was a vast empire primarily centered in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent. And while we will be talking about their political and economic achievements, what we want to focus on today is the Gandhar School of Art, which they were famous for patronizing and what this stood for. Now, the most popular image that comes to mind when we speak about the Gandhar School of Art are these images of the Buddha, right? Mm. Which we associate with the Kushans. This is this very refined image in which you see the Buddha, you see a rope-clad Buddha with the halo, with the Ushnisha and the Urna, with the signs of a Mahapurusha, elongated earlobes and so on and so forth. And while it is commonly held that this is the inception of the Buddha image, which is not correct, as we will discover in this episode. But yes, there is something about this school of art and the lingering impact it left on other artistic traditions that's noteworthy. And that is why I think it's important that we locate ourselves in that particular region and see the kind of artistic traditions that flourish there. Yes, Eric. And it's so interesting to note that the variety of art that was produced in Gandhar mm. was beyond just these Buddha sculptures. So you see fantastic images rendered on coins. They mm. were also producing images of various bodhisattvas, as well as scenes from the Jatakas. So a lot of narrative art also featured in this Gandhar school, clearly signifying that this was a flourishing economy, which paid a lot of emphasis on artistic traditions. Mm -hmm. So that is a little bit about what we'll be exploring in this episode. Now let's begin first by talking a little bit about who the Kushans were. So the Kushans were one of the five great Yuchi principalities, which were located in Western China. And they were called Guishang, please excuse my pronunciation, in this locality. But of course, Kushan is an anglicized version of Guishang. Now the Kushans expanded from Western China towards the Oxus River. 
and it's only in early years of the first century CE that they were able to establish control in Afghanistan, specifically in Gandhara or Kandahar as it is called in present-day Afghanistan. The first ruler who led the Kushans into India was someone called Kujula Kadfisis or Kadfis. Again, we don't exactly know how this was pronounced. Mm. But this was the person who managed to consolidate control eventually over the northwest part of the Indian subcontinent as well. Yeah. And he comes to Gandhara, right? Which is a region with its own rich history, Mm. right? It has seen... It's a deeply diverse background. You you go back all the way to it being a part of the Achaemenid Empire of Persia. You see its own history with Alexander and the Mauryas. And then you see a series of Indo-Greek dynasts. Mm. And it's in the aftermath of this sort of mixed history that the Kushans emerge with Kujula Katfises as the first ruler who was able to consolidate rule in Gandhara, in this subcontinent. Now why it's important that Gandhara emerges as this cosmopolitan and checkered location is also because of its strategic placement, right? Mm. You think of it as providing access into the Indus Basin via the Khyber Pass. So it is a strategically important location. Therefore, we see a plethora empires, ideas, cultures, people coming over here. Now, before we delve deeper into the economic, political, and social backdrop of the Kushans in Gandhar, which is also obviously interlinked with the artistic traditions that flourished here because it's not just art for art's sake. It is a deeply political, economic move. The whole process of patronizing certain sculptures or certain coins, the kind of images that you see on these coins sort of gives you a peek into the self-image of the emperor, right? right? Because the coins have a deity, and then they also have the emperor. Mm -hmm. So there is a self-image that is being made. There is a self-image that is then being projected. But what is so special is, as we talked about in the beginning, are images of the Buddha or images emerging from the Buddhist tradition. And, you know, it's fascinating because we go from these schools of art where we see Buddha not represented in a bodily form right? You see representation through symbols associated with the Buddha. So you have uh, the throne or you have his footprints or you have the Bodhi tree or, you know, the stupa. But in the case of Gandhara, the images that we have from there, we have these clear depictions of the Buddha as in, in a bodily form. And not only that, you have images of the Buddha in various stages of life, right? Mm. Those very fascinating images of him fasting while he was on the journey towards enlightenment. Mm. And then you have these images in which these almond-shaped eyes, this very serene face, these earlobes, and his other features that sort of, you know, give us the markers of a great man. All of those take a very tangible meaning under the Kushans. Yes, Eric. And this again links us back to when you asked what is it that makes the Gandhara School of Art so special is that there is this artistic diversity that you see, which is almost as diverse as the region itself, where artists are able to create the Buddha in this serene form with all of his features of a Mahapurusha, such an evocative image. Mm. 
at the same time they're able to create an equally evocative image of buddha for example fasting like mm. you mentioned so the fasting buddha is one image that we would absolutely recommend you to see if you want to get a hold of how impressive gandharan art is because this is the buddha shown with almost all of his bones bare his ribs are exposed he has sunken eyes and in fact as pramod chandra describes it the face carries hardly a trace of human flesh the feeble eyes are sunken in deep sockets the cheekbones protrude the cheeks are pinched and the skin of the forehead is pulled tightly over the skull so for an artist to be able to create an image of the buddha in such an intense phase of his meditative journey is really something that the gandharan artists deserve a lot of credit for yeah and you know you mentioned pramod chandra and he talks about how as you just mentioned that there is a connection that is established with hellenistic style mm. in in showing these figures in moments of their life other than their prime right. right so there is that connection what comes to mind is this another very fascinating sculpture of the buddha which is at the met in which he has you know he's sitting in abhya mudra which is of course a gesture of approachability mm. you know with his hands raised his whole uh, his right hand raised with his five fingers towards the subject and it is a very welcoming gesture but the most interesting thing about this sculpture is his halo which has these serrations right. you know which which sort of give this idea that light is coming out of the halo yeah. so instead of being just a clearly round halo mm. it's like there's these little arrows mm. right these things poking out of the halo the most common motif for the sun that yes, is yes yes exactly it looks exactly like the sun so you know it's talked about how this two had very close connections or as the met says it has the closest connection with roman sculpture mm. than any of the other surviving gandharan sculptures in in bronze so it is quite interesting that we see the image of the buddha that we know so well today emerge out of this cosmopolitan tradition of art and the diversity of it and truly this diversity what emerges from it is just so evocative i mean i think about the mastery of the crafts people of gandhara right kudrat yes and how they were able to and they continue to mesmerize with their technique like vidya dehji has talked about this that when you see the image of the buddha that comes from gandhara you have the artist the the person responsible for crafting these images very elegantly rendering the features of the buddha so that you know what we see on the top of his head that oval shaped what is considered to be you know his hair the top of the skull is known as the ushnisha whereas it is also considered to be the crown of enlightenment mm. similarly you have the tuft of the hair which is right between his eyebrows and the uh, hegia says that this which is known as the urna it is so elegant that it looks like it is a tika or a mark right and this is yet again another symbol of wisdom so there are these very dramatic evocative images that come from gandhara but you know a very crucial point to mention here is that it is commonly held that the image of the buddha 
its inception is rooted in Gandhara and with the Kushans. But that is not true. I mean, we are familiar with the work of uh, Susan Huntington, who talks about how the iconographic conventions in the stone images of the Buddha go back to the pre-Kushan period, right? But the image of the Buddha as we know him best with all of these features, with, with Hellenistic traditions, that is the one that goes back to the period of the Kushans at Kandhara. Perhaps its most sophisticated manifestation yes, of yes, the time. Yes, yes. The Hegia also talks about the craftspeople behind it and their diversity, right? Where they come from. So she mentions that they come from Bactria, from the Persian territories, uh, some from the Roman provinces of even Western Asia. So these artists have indeed created stunning images, really. And as we are all aware, Eric can go on and on when it comes to art. Yeah, I just can. Uh, so now... I'm glad you mentioned Rome, actually, because mm. we should talk a little bit about the Roman connection to the Kushan Empire and more generally to India. Yeah. As Upinder Singh points out, the period between the 2nd century BCE to the 2nd century CE is a thriving period for trade between India and the Roman Empire. At the same time, India also played a very important role in the Silk Road so you have connects with both the West and the East. And a lot of these connections have actually been mentioned by historians such as Pliny and Periplus. Sea trade with Rome was more prevalent because Roman gold coins have been found to be concentrated in Coimbatore in Tamil Nadu and in Krishna Valley of Andhra Pradesh. Mm. On the other hand, we also have literature from the Sangam period that mentions trade with the Romans. Yeah, and, and it mentions something very interesting, doesn't it? Actually, it's Pliny the Elder who talks about the connection between Romans giving India or getting to India wine and gold and them mm -hmm. taking black pepper. Yeah. And you have the Roman historian Pliny the Elder who talks about the unfavorable trade balance with <laughs> India and the significant drainage to, to the gold of Rome during this sort of period of trade. This is from um, Partha Mittar's work on yet again on if you actually urge me or let me speak about <laughs> art. But uh, <laughs> Kudra's giving me the, she's looking at me as if she's going to completely stop this episode here if I go in that direction. But what I wanted to mention is that he talks about this trade and he mentions that the trade was equal in a way where you see things going to Rome from India as well, including sculptures, mm. right? So you have that very fascinating ivory statue that was found in the old city of Pompeii, which is known as the Pompeii Lakshmi. And she was found in 1938 by an Italian scholar and it sort of gives you an insight into how there was, you know, a give and take from both the cultures. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. Very interesting interconnections. Yeah. And Kudrat, you mentioned about the concentration of Roman coins in South India. Yeah. But I think it is also important to talk about the gold coins and the copper coins and the various other coins of the Kushans, but especially the gold coins of the Kushans that did follow a Roman weight standard, right? Yes. And you seem to have studied these coins with much more attention. Tell us a bit about the coins of the Kushans and what kind of artistic traditions we see flourishing in them. Alright, so what we do know about the Kushan gold coins is that what you see is a kind of transition where... First, these coins only seem to depict the Hindu god Shiv 
and later on especially during the period of Kanishk which is also considered the zenith of the Kushan empire mm. you not only have hindu gods but also zoroastrian deities as well as the buddha depicted in these gold coins so one side of the coins was almost always reserved for the figure of a deity among zoroastrian gods you had atash who was a fire god and mitra the sun god what you also see are greek deities so for example helios the sun god and selene the moon goddess are also seen on kushan coins the other side of these coins usually had a full size portrait of the kushan emperor and the emperor would be wielding a trident and standing in a very confident sort of posture every element of his clothing was well defined there was usually a long coat there were also fire altars depicted in some coins especially from kanishk's period so we would urge our audience to actually see images of kushan coins because many of these contain inscriptions in the roman script so you can attempt to decipher the names of either the rulers or the deities on the back on the basis of these inscriptions and you know kudrat i remember seeing some of these coins at this exhibition that was organized at the national gallery of modern art in new delhi mm-hmm. called roots and roots by mr rakavendra singh i remember seeing these gold coins and being absolutely gobsmacked and just just and you know i we've spoken about this earlier that i do not easily get gravitated to like coins, <laughs> coins i mean yeah. i have a very specific sort of artistic Interest, tradition yeah. that that calls me but i just stood in front of some of these gold coins i was gazing at their artistry i was moved by their technique and there truly is something that calls you i feel like yet again it is time manifesting itself in the form of a coin and it's sort of speaking to you about the many diverse traditions mores ideas of this equally diverse time there is something quite fascinating about the kushan coin yes and i do think that you were probably fascinated by them also because you adore the art of the gandhar school yes i think yeah definitely there's yeah. a bias at play <laughs> and of course because some of these coins especially those which have the image of the buddha at the back yeah. they depict buddha in like a micro version of the gandhar buddha stone yes. sculptures yes so of course a lot more remains to be said about the gandhar school of art other forms of art that were patronized by the kushans and other contemporary kingdoms and empires but we do recommend that you head over to the ethnology page on instagram where we have time and again brought to you images with narrative descriptions of what's going on in gandhar sculptures of buddha of stories from the jatakas and also of the gandharan gold coins yes, that eric just yes, mentioned yes and also in connection what was happening in places like mathura and amravati we do hope that we have piqued your curiosity and if you have not yet seen wonderful sculpture and coins of the gandhar school of art then we suggest that you look up some of these images there's a amazing repository in indian museums as well as museums such as the met in new york the lakma museum in los angeles and all of these are digitally available and they do make for a great viewing experience even if you can't be there in person absolutely so we urge you all to begin your journey into gandhara and into this fascinating school of art and the many interconnections yet again linked to our last episode the kind of corridors of history that this might lead you into because that is what we do here at ethnology introduce you to the many many 
fascinating word of the podcast <laughs> corridors of history so thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of the for all times like podcast by theology this is eric chopra and this is kudrat singh and we'll see you very soon 